On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for eighteen years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. The passage that was read for you is in Luke chapter 13, verse 10 through 17. And it's actually a story within the main story, the body of work of Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of stories, wonderful stories. And especially in the New Testament, of course, the stories are different. But if we were to talk about different stories that we can read in the Bible, we, we would find ourselves entranced and interested and sometimes excited about the stories that we read. But what I want to tell you is that the stories in the Old Testament, which is the first part of this book, the uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, starting with the book of Genesis and running through the book of Malachi, the stories in the Old Testament are different than the stories in the New Testament. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. First of all, let me say that when we talk about Old Testament stories, we're talking about stories that are fairly familiar. And let me tell you what sort of reaction we have when we read those stories. And again, they're not like regular stories that are told from a human standpoint, from a natural, normal standpoint. Uh, there are authors who can tell some pretty good stories, and we can hear them and enjoy them and sometimes become part of the story. But Bible stories are different, in particular New Testament stories. But let's start with the Old Testament stories. When we look at the book of Genesis in chapter 1, we learn that Adam and Eve were the creation of God. He, he created us, and this, this was the story of the Garden of Eden. So as we're reading that story... We're entranced. We enjoy it, and we watch what's going on, and we look at it, and we think, Eve, you shouldn't have eaten that fruit. And then we look at Adam, and we say, Adam, man up. What, what did you do? Now you're going to blame Eve for what she did. So we sort of get involved in the story in that way, and we see what's going on, and we get the information, and it, and it, uh, it has an impact on us. Actually, it's the only story in the world that tells us about the beginning of, of humanity. But aside from that, it is a Bible story, and it's interesting, and we tell it to our children, and it's worldwide known. Then we come to the book of uh, Genesis again, a little later on in chapter 6 and 7, and we read about Noah's Ark. And that's an interesting story, how that Noah chose two of each kind of animals, and put them in the ark, and he built them. We kind of get involved in that in a way. 
Now, we don't get involved in the sense that we help him select the wood or help him with the design of the boat, but we do get involved in, in sort of a way, and we, we like to watch what's going on, and we tell our children the story. We have the Bible story of Noah and the ark and all the animals. It's interesting. Then later on, we run into a fellow by the name of Moses in Exodus chapter 1. Moses in the land of Egypt, and he was hidden by his mother in the bulrushes when he was just an infant, new, newborn. And his sister took care of him, made sure that he, he was safe while he was being hidden because the Pharaoh had issued an edict to kill all the male children in, Egypt, in uh, Israel that were born in Egypt. So we watch Moses and his career, and then we see him in, uh, in interfacing with Pharaoh and trying to get Pharaoh to let Israel come out of the land of Egypt. And then we watch them go across the Red Sea, and, and we, as we read the book, and we read about the, the mountains of water that stood up on each side as they walked through on dry land, we, we, uh, we try to imagine what was going on. Here are these people coming across the Red Sea, one arm of the Red Sea, and the water's piled up on both sides, and we think, well, they, they should have been sunk up into their necks in mud getting across that. And we think of all the different things that are going on as they're crossing on dry land, the Red Sea with the, with the walls of water on both sides of them. We even have motion pictures that try to depict that for us. Interesting stories, interesting stories. Joshua and the fall of Jericho. The children of Israel went around the city of Jericho seven times. On the seventh day, they made seven trips. And then they blew the trumpets and shouted, and the walls came tumbling down. We have a song that depicts that, and we watch that, and we're, we're interested in that story. And we get involved to some degree because we admire what's going on. Then there's Samson and Delilah. Samson growing a long hair, he took the vow of a Nazarite, and he didn't cut his hair, and he didn't drink anything that came from the grape. He didn't drink any alcoholic beverages. He got involved in, with Delilah, and, and we look at him, we say, Samson, be careful, be careful, because she's a Philistine, <laughs> and he wasn't careful. And they cut his hair, and he lost his strength, and they put out his eyes, and we, we get involved in that, and we think, wow. What, what a mistake you made, Samson. And the same thing with David, the king of Israel, and, and how that he got involved with, with, uh, with Delilah when he shouldn't have. And anyway, David and Bathsheba. <laughs> I said Delilah. That was Samson and Delilah. Okay, David and Bathsheba. And we look at what he did, and we, we're, we're, we get involved in the story to some degree, and we say, David, you shouldn't have been on the wall in the city looking down and checking things out that he should have been doing what you're supposed to have been doing. So we get involved in these stories to some degree. Yet, when we start to read the New Testament, it's a different book. When we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the story of Jesus Christ, something happens to us that does not happen when you're reading the Old Testament stories. What happens to us is that we become part of the story. It's not just that we get involved in it, we get drawn into it.
We're actually drawn into these stories. Let me give you an illustration. When Jesus was born and his parents took him before he was born, when his parents came to the city of Bethlehem, they had no place to stay. And so every year we have these nativity scenes where Jesus, the baby Jesus, is born and Mary and Joseph are standing by and he's in a manger in, in a stable in Bethlehem. And it's like we're, we're, we're watching as he's being born. You know, nowadays when, when you go to the hospital and a, a newborn baby is born and the family comes and the friends come and they want to see the baby, they stand outside the nursery and they're walled off by a pane of glass. And we look in and we're interested in the birth and the child and what he looks like because we're related. We're, we're part of this family. And that every year, the world stands still, once a year at least, and looks in through the glass at the baby Jesus being born because we're related. We have a part in this. It's not just a story. It's a story that makes sure that we are part of it. And there's no other book like this in the world. The Holy Spirit draws us into the story itself. We're part of it. Another story that, that uh, interests me a lot is, is found in Luke chapter 2. When Jesus, when he was 12 years old, his family took him, and they did this once a year, they took him to the city of Jerusalem where there was a feast. Feast of the Passover. And at the city of Jerusalem, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people with their cattle and their sheep and the crowds and the noise and the hustle and the bustle. And they came to sacrifice and have a feast or a big celebration. So there were, this place was teeming with people. And this whole company came. And when Jesus came with his parents, he came with his relatives as well. They all came together. And a whole company came with them. And they traveled in a company like they did at that time because of robbers and bandits on the highways. They all came together and moved sort of like in a caravan. So when they came to the city of Jerusalem, they spent the week there. Actually, it was seven days that they spent, maybe eight days, that they spent together. When the family and the whole crowd decided to go home, this is found in Luke chapter 2, when they decided to go home, they traveled on their way home. They lived in Nazareth, which was about 70 miles away. On their way home, after a full day's walk, and that was probably around 20 miles, they looked around and the 12-year-old boy wasn't there. Jesus was not there. Now we're part of this story. And we're thinking, he's, the, the boy's missing. Have you ever lost a kid in a crowd? I, I have. And I, it, it panics you. Well, these people were panicking. And as I'm reading this story, I'm getting kind of a, a feeling of panic, you know. Wait a minute, where's, where's our boy? Where'd he go? And so the parents rushed back to Jerusalem looking for him. That's what I would do. Try to find him. And they spent three days looking for this boy. Three days. Where would you look for a 12-year-old boy in that city, in that metropolis? If 
I had been, as a boy, taken to a big festivity or celebration and left behind, where would I go? Where would I be? Where would my parents look for me? Well, I'm sure the parents decided, well, maybe he's with the other kids somewhere. He's sure the other kids got together then, just like they do now. His peers, they, they would look where his peers would run around. But well, where else would he be? Maybe he's at the natatorium, at the swimming pool. They'd look at the swimming pool with fear in their heart that he might have drowned. He's, he's gone. They would look everywhere. They would look where the animals are because kids naturally are curious about animals. They would look, and I'm, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, let's go find him. Where is this boy? Well, they found him three days later, and he was in the temple. The temple was the meeting place of all of Israel where they came together to worship God. And he was sitting, talking to the doctors of law, and he was discoursing with them, asking them questions, and answering questions they asked. I'm sure they thought they'd run across a prodigy because he was answering questions that probably they couldn't answer. And he was answering questions they couldn't make up. He was, he was involved, engaged with them. If my parents had lost me in a big city when I was 12 years old, I don't think they would look for me in a church building. I don't think that's where they'd go to look for me. And Jesus said, why didn't you come here? Because that's where I would be. He would be where people were talking about the law. And he sort of mildly rebuked them and said, this is where I was. Didn't you know? And that's, they asked him, why did why, you do this? Why did you run off? And he said, didn't you know where I would be? That's where he would be. Well, the stories we read in the, read in the New Testament, now, there are other stories, a lot of other stories that get that actually draw us in. I don't want to use the term suck us in, but they draw us in. We become part of the story. We become an in, integral part of that story. And that's part of the story that I want to look at in Luke chapter 13, in our text, verse 10 through 17. The story of Jesus who came into the city, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue, and he was there, and he was teaching. He was, he was called upon to teach. He was part of the synagogue service, and it says he was teaching in one of these synagogues. Now, we, we, uh, let's, let's just stop for a minute and talk about where he was, because... This story is going to draw us in. It's going to pull us in and we're going, to, we're, we're, we're going to become part of the story. We're part of it. What was Jesus doing in the synagogue and what was a synagogue? What was it? If you were to, to ask anybody now what a synagogue is, they, they could give you an answer that, that goes something like this. Well, a synagogue is a place where at least 10 male Jewish individuals have agreed to congregate and meet on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Every Saturday they come together and meet there, but basically the synagogues today are even more expansive than that. But what about the synagogues then? The synagogue as a system, it wasn't the temple, but it was a place where 
the Jewish people met and they studied the Bible and talked about the Bible and copied the Bible and prayed together. It was a place that the community had developed among themselves, these people, so that they would not lose connection with one another. Does that remind you of the church? People wanting to stay connected. Now, in 586 B.C., before Christ, the Babylonian government had, had invaded Israel and come into Jerusalem and invaded the area of Jerusalem. And they'd come into that area and it actually destroyed the temple where all the people were supposed to be gathered three times a year as a people to come together and talk about God and have a feast together and celebration together three times a year and, and offer sacrifices. But that had been destroyed. And the people had been carried into captivity to a foreign land. And so they began to, to congregate in smaller groups. And these smaller groups were known as synagogues or gathering places. Places where they were drawn together. A synagogue. It was the center of the Israelitish and Jewish worship after the temple was destroyed. There was an attempt made to rebuild the temple uh, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was never successful. This was some some, uh, 400 years before Jesus. Finally, Herod rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem uh, about 30 years before Jesus appeared. And maybe maybe not that long. It was it was it was closer to, and I, I've got I made a mistake there. I think that the time was somewhere in the area of fifteen years before the time of Jesus' birth. Anyway, he started the construction of the temple and then got it built. And uh, that's where the the children of Israel came together as a nation, and they reiterated their roots, as it were. And they were wanting to stay together as a people, come together as a people, and remind themselves of who they were and who they were worshiping, which was, of course, God. But still, the synagogue system continued. It was the center of Jewish teaching. It was a place where they read the Scriptures and studied the Scriptures and even copied the Scriptures. It was a place where the scribes came together during the week every day of the week, and they took the copies of the Scriptures and they made their own copies. So they were. it was a center of, of Jewish learning and Jewish religion. And in Acts chapter 15 at verse 21, James, who was probably the brother of Jesus, commented on the synagogues when he said, Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So every Sabbath day, the community came together, the Jewish community came together in the synagogue and they read the scriptures. That's what they did on Saturday. And that's what Jesus was doing. He taught and met with these people every Saturday. So when we think about Jesus and the synagogue, think about where you're going to find Him on Saturday. Every Saturday, Jesus was in the synagogue. Somewhere. Capernaum, he was in the synagogues in Galilee. He was in the synagogue 
as he came down to Bethlehem, he was at the synagogue, wherever he was located, he was in the synagogue on Saturday. That's where he was. That was his custom. And as a matter of fact, he said when he was being questioned in John chapter 18, after he had been taken custody, you remember, and the priests were questioning him, Anna was, Annas was questioning him, and they were asking him, what do you teach? And he said, uh, he said I, ask the people that I've been teaching. He says, I was, I was teaching every day in the synagogue. Ask them what I was teaching. He said, I was ever in the synagogues. That's where he was. Now, there's no mention made in the scriptures about a synagogue before this time. Nothing. There's nothing in the Old Testament about a synagogue. So some people are saying, well, okay, the synagogue was not Bible-based. How did it grow up? Well, the community of Jews, Israelites, came together and said, we need a place where we can meet and we can talk about God and we can teach the Word of God. So that's what they did. And they built these places so that they could come together. And sometimes, sometimes even... There were others who helped them build them. We'll, we'll notice, note that in just a minute. They were autonomous in nature. They had, uh, they had a ruling group called elders in the synagogue. And sometimes they had what was called a chief elder or chief ruler. And he's the fellow that ministered what was going on. He was the fellow that set the order and arrangement of what they were doing. The synagogues look something like this. A lot of them now that we know about and that, that we've, we've, we've archaeologically discovered had three doors coming into the beginning of it and the doors usually faced east. And when they came in through the doors, then there was in an apse, in a, in a niche in the wall, there was a copy of the scriptures, the law, basically the law and the prophets. So they, they dug out or had made a, a niche in the wall, and that wall was the wall that was closest to the city of Jerusalem. So if the city of Jerusalem was west of there, that's where the, that wall was, and that's where the scriptures were. Sometimes they put them in a box, but they were in scrolls, big rolls. And they put them in that niche in the wall. And then they had a seat, and it was generally from what we can see archaeologically, and there, there have been a couple of them that have been discovered, some down in, uh, in, in Ethiopia and some over in Turkey, some remnants of these synagogues. But generally beneath that niche in the wall, there was a, a chair that was molded or formed into the brickwork. And it was called Moses' Seat. That's where the leader sat as he read the scriptures. That's where Jesus. That's where Jesus would sit. When he came in, they'd ask him, "You want to? You want to say something to the crowd?" Sit here, and so he would sit there. And before him was a table that upon which they could roll the scriptures out. So whoever was going to read the scriptures and talk about the scriptures sat in that seat and read from the scroll and and spoke from that that point. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, talking about Jesus, He came to Nazareth. So, I'm getting involved in this story. Here's what I'm doing. I'm saying, okay, Lord, we're going to go to the synagogue together. What's going to happen? 
Well, when Jesus comes in, and I'm with him, he comes in and I see the, the uh, chief ruler, or the minister, come over and give him the welcome and say, would you like to read the scriptures and talk today? And it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus stood. Then it says, at verse uh, verse 20, he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. The structure itself, the synagogue itself, was probably built of stone. And if you, were to, if you were to walk into the synagogue, you would probably notice on two walls opposite each other, not, not the wall where the, where the uh, seat of Moses was and the table was, because it, it was uh, facing differently. But it, it, if you were to walk in on your right and the left, you would see benches, stone benches, sort of like stadium seating from the lowest to the highest. And on the back... You'd, where the, where the uh, niche in the wall was, and where Moses' seat was, and where the table was, you'd see also these same tiered seats. The floor was hard-packed dirt, or sometimes they, they paved it. Now, the people that came in could sit around on each side and listen to the, to the speaker and listen to the law being spoken. It says that uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 4 and 5, that the elders of the Jews besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this thing, because they were talking about a centurion who had built one of these places. He, the centurion, actually paid for the building of the synagogue. And we have some ruins, as we said before, that, that show that this, what the synagogues looked like. Now, it says that in Matthew chapter 23 at verse 1 through 3, Jesus referred to this seat that's called Moses' seat. When he spoke to the multitude and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They sit in Moses' seat. They were sitting in, that, in front of that lectern in that seat. And he said, Whatever they say, whatever they bid you to do, observe. Whatever they're reading from the Scriptures, he says, Do that. Now, the seating arrangement that they had also involved where people could sit, basically, and it was a custom. When a stranger came in, he was invited in. They, they allowed anyone to come in and listen to the Scriptures. They wanted them to hear. So when a stranger came in, he was invited to sit on the ground, sit on the floor. That's where he was invited to sit. He wasn't invited to sit on one of these benches. Sit on the floor. When a, when a publican and a Pharisee came in, sit here on the floor. Sit down here. When a woman came in, and they did, sit on the floor. They sat on the floor. Who sat on the seats? Well, the people who had status sat on the seats. The scribes and the Pharisees. They could sit on the seats. And the higher they sat, the more noteworthy they were. That the, the stature they had depended upon where they could sit. 
And so Jesus said about these same men, he said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 6 and 7, he says, they loved the uppermost seats in the synagogues. They didn't, they didn't uh, like just sitting on the bottom row, they liked to sit on the top row. And that's what Jesus said, they loved to sit there. The apostles that Jesus sent into the world to preach the gospel used the synagogues as a base of their operation. It was sort of like a jumping off place. So when they came to town to preach the word, they came to the synagogue. That's where people were studying the scriptures. And that's where this community, community was getting together. I want to go back to that for just a minute. These people, Israel, or the Jews, knew that they had to stay connected as a people. We're all a family, they were saying. We're all together. They wanted to stay together, and the synagogue is what was holding them together. Let's stay together as a family. Let's make sure that, that we remember who we are and where we came from and what our background is and who we're worshiping. We all worship God. So they, 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 were, they were very intent on making sure that they kept that going. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead and the apostles went out preaching, that's where they went to preach. And there were those who knew that, that that was going on because Saul of Tarsus was one who was persecuting Christians. And in order for him to find Christians, he went to the synagogues in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, with letters, in, went to the synagogues in Damascus, with letters from the high priest that he can bring anybody that was teaching about Jesus bound back to Jerusalem. So he knew where Christians were. They were in the synagogues. That's where it all started because that's where people came together to study God's Word. In Acts chapter 13, verse 14 and 15, after Saul became Paul, it says he came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue said unto him, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, say on. So they asked Paul to speak, and he did. And it says in verse 44 and 46, it says the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. So they were preaching in the synagogue. That's where they, that's where they came to preach. The synagogue was the place where the word of God should have taken precedence over opinions and customs and traditions. So, here, here it was. These people knew they needed to stay together as a family, as a people. We need to stay together. We need to be together. And we need to be hearing the Word of God. That's what they were doing in the synagogue. During the week, the scribes and the lawyers were in the synagogue studying the Scriptures and copying them, making copies. And sometimes they were called, later on, they were called schools or shuls today where people came during the week to study the scriptures. But certainly on Saturday, everybody was off work. Nobody was supposed to be working at their jobs on Saturdays. So they were told, they were told that they could come to the synagogue and hear the scriptures. And sometimes there was a visiting preacher that was there, speaker, just like Jesus. So they came to hear him. So you would think that these people were absorbed in 
and really taking up the scriptures and were, it was so much part of their life that they would knew they would know what the scriptures said which brings us to the sabbath the sabbath that was the day they were there the subject of the sabbath had to come up now jesus confronted the scribes and pharisees on at least six different occasions when he was in the synagogue with them. And he, he confronted them because something went on on the Sabbath day that they didn't think should be happening. Now then, the text we have before us in Luke chapter 13, verse 11 through 13, says that there was a woman there that was bowed over and couldn't get up. Now let's picture that. I'm, I've come in, we've, we've come in the door with Jesus and he's, he's teaching. He's over there by the seat of Moses. And on the lectern table, he's got the scrolls out and he's talking about God and God's wonderful works. And everybody's listening rapidly. And down on the dirt floor here is a woman that's bent over with, maybe it's osteoporosis, I'm not sure. But she, she'd, been, she'd been bent over for 18 years. And it says she couldn't get up. She couldn't get up. Have you ever gotten on the floor? Couldn't get up? That's where this woman was. She was on the floor and couldn't get up. I'm thinking, when I think about things like this, I think about, what if that was my mother? What if that, was, that woman was, what would I have thought? Did anybody, was there a gentleman in the house who said, hey, don't sit on the floor, ma'am. Come sit by me on the bench. No. They had this woman sitting on the floor. She was bent over with osteoporosis. It says, it says that uh, she, she couldn't raise herself up. And Jesus said he reached out his hand and asked her to come to him. Now, I'm, I'm part of the story. I'm getting involved in this thing. And I'm sure you are too. We're involved in this thing. Jesus, what are you going to do? Here's a woman. Here's a woman, not a man. Here's a woman. And she's on the floor and she can't get up. And he's saying, come here. I would imagine that, that there was somebody jumped to his feet, maybe several, and went over and grabbed her and got her up so she could get over to Jesus. Maybe some of the other women did. But I know they brought him, I know that she came to him. She couldn't lift herself up. But he touched her and she stood up. And you know what the, what the reaction of the leaders in the synagogue was? They said, you shouldn't be doing this on the Sabbath day. Six days you can work, but don't work today. Now the thing that jumps into my mind is, was that work? Is that what he's doing? Is this how Jesus was earning his living? Did he did he move through the through the neighborhood earning a living, healing people? Is that what he did? He never took a thin dime for what he did. This was not his job. This was not the labor that he was engaged in. He was compassionate. He he healed this woman. They said you you shouldn't be you shouldn't be working on on the Sabbath day. The synagogue governors, called rulers or chief rulers, were most certainly they were the Pharisees or men who should have known their scriptures. Isn't that right? 
They should have known what the Bible taught. What they were telling Jesus was, you can't do that on the Sabbath day. Let's look at some other illustrations of this. In Luke chapter 6, verse 6 through 11, I'm going to read this very quickly. It says, It came to pass on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. His right hand was shrunk up. Now, I'm sure this fellow wasn't sitting on one of the pews or wasn't sitting on one of the benches. He was probably standing out on the dirt floor or sitting on the dirt floor because they, that's where they allowed people that, were, that had physical disabilities. They didn't seat them on a chair. They, seat, they seated them on the floor. They let them come in, but you're not going to sit in a place that's, that's reserved for dignitaries. So here was this fellow without the ability to use his, his right hand. And it says, The Pharisees watched Jesus, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. And I'm saying, when I come to this text and I look at it, I'm saying, Heal him, Jesus. Fix him. Fix him. I'm involved in this thing. I'm involved in the narrative. I'm part of it. He, he, he pulls me in. In Luke chapter 14 at verse 1, it says, He came to pass... As uh, he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to uh, eat bread on the Sabbath day, they watched him. So they they had a meal after this. By the way, let me mention something else about the synagogues. They used the synagogues as community centers. They, They had meals there a lot of times. They had festivities there. They performed weddings there. And and they... uh, they had people that, that came together had, who had needs, and they sometimes built rooms on the outside to house the stranger that came by, somebody of their own background. So these, these were sort of community centers. But here it says they came, they came to this Pharisee's house, and he was, he was feeding them on the Sabbath day, a chief Pharisee. And that was, in all likelihood, that was the fellow that was the ruler of the synagogue. But anyway, it says they watched him. They were watching Jesus. So here we are with Jesus, and we know that all eyes are on him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke unto the lawyers and Pharisees and saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now that's the only thing they could think of. This, this term dropsy is an interesting term. We're not really sure what it was, basically. Well, we're sure of one thing, that it, it had to do with some swelling. The word dropsy comes from the French word that we, that's usually pronounced hydrodropsy, which means fluid, water. And it, it's, it's a form of edema, swelling of, swelling of the joints, the swelling of any part of the lower extremities or the further extremities from the body. So you could have dropsy in your hand, so your fingers would swell up like, uh, uh, like wieners. And in your feet and legs, your legs would swell, and your ankles would swell, and your feet would swell. You couldn't walk. This fellow probably had more than just a mild form of ankle swelling or foot swelling because he was there and... Where was he? Well, obviously, he was on this dirt floor. He wasn't on a bench. Anyway, it says the Jews were looking at him and wondering, what, what's he going to do? This guy had problems. He had problems and probably couldn't even shuffle around. They said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? That's what Jesus said. 
and said they held their peace. They didn't say anything. He took him and healed him and let him go. And man, I'm saying, that's the way you ought to do it. That's the way it ought to be done. Go, Jesus. In John chapter 5 at verse 8, there was a crippled man for 38 years, I mean, a, that was sitting by a pool and uh, in a place called Bethsaida. He was sitting by the pool and he was waiting for an angel to come down and stir the water and he would get in the water and maybe get better. Crippled for 38 years. If you can imagine this guy, he couldn't, he couldn't walk 38 years and when Jesus found him, he told the man to take up your bed and walk. But the problem was it was on the Sabbath day. So the Jews' reaction was, uh, they, 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 uh, they said to the man that was cured, it's a Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now what did that have to do with the Sabbath? That's, that's the question that, that comes to our mind. In John chapter 9, in John chapter 9, there was a man who was born blind from birth. And it says, Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. As I look at this, and I'm, as I'm reading this story within a story, the story of Jesus overall, and here's the story that's within that story, Jesus finds this man who has never seen a sparrow. He's never seen a butterfly. He's never seen an ant. He's never seen the face of his mother and father. If he knew what his mother looked like, he had to find out by feeling her face with his hands. He had never seen colors. He'd never seen blue or red, so he didn't know a Republican from a Democrat. He didn't have any idea of what a color was. He had never seen a sunset. He had never seen a sunrise. He had never seen the face of a child. He would never seen anything. And Jesus made some spittle and put them in his eyes and he could see. But you know what? It was on the Sabbath day. I'm saying, do it, Lord. Let this guy see. Let's let him see. But in chapter, in this same chapter, chapter 9, verse 16, it says, they questioned the man about the miracle. And, and they were stunned. They, they, didn't, they didn't like the fact. They said, that some, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not of God, talking about Jesus, because he keeps not the Sabbath day. There's something terribly wrong about their concept of the Sabbath day, isn't there? Something terribly wrong. So this is probably where we need to take a look at the Sabbath day and, un- and see if we can understand what it was all about. The first time we run across the term Sabbath or seventh, Saturday, is in Genesis chapter 2 at verse 2 and 3. And that text says, On the seventh day God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all of His work which He had made, and God blessed the work, that God blessed all of His work that He had created and made. Now that seventh day was not acknowledged anywhere else until the time of the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt. So in all the rest of the book of Genesis, the term Sabbath day doesn't come up, Saturday. But when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he wanted to remind them of this day. And that, that God, God reminded them of it. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
He's saying, this is a different day. He said, six days will you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter, your manservant nor your maidservant nor your cattle nor any stranger that is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and he rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying, I do not want you working on Saturday. Don't work on Saturday. And don't you work your servants on Saturday. Don't you work your manservant. Don't you work your maidservant. Don't you work the stranger that comes into your gates. And don't you work your cattle and your sheep. Don't you go out here plowing your, your, your land on the Sabbath day. Saturday is the day that you're supposed to rest. Don't do anything that day. Exodus chapter 31 verse 16 and 17 says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. Notice, the children of Israel are to keep the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. It was a sign between God and Israel. It was not between a sign between me and God, or you and God, unless you're an Israelite. He said, it's a sign between me and Israel. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now he demonstrated what he was talking about when he said, let's, let's, let's make sure that you rest on the, on the seventh day, on Saturday. Don't do any work. What he was saying was, I don't want you to do anything that would involve your activities of earning a living. I'm going to take care of you. Saturday, you don't do anything. Don't plow, don't harvest, don't pick fruit, don't plant fruit trees, don't do any of these things. Don't go to the marketplace, don't try to make money, don't make jewelry, don't do any of these things. This is the day that I've given you to rest. You just take it easy today. And we wonder why that was. Why, why was that? And we get a clue in Exodus chapter 16 when he talks about manna. You remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, God gave them manna or bread from heaven to eat every day. And it says, Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today you shall not find it in the field. So on Saturday, they could not go into the field and find the manna to eat. Because God stopped it on Friday. But on Friday, he gave them a double dose of manna. And he said, you gather all you need for today and for tomorrow, because tomorrow you're not going to do any work. Okay. He said, six days you'll gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there shall be none. He said, see, for that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide you every man in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh. Now, if you take a look at this carefully, you'll see that these folks were violating what he said initially. He said, don't, don't go out of your tent on the seventh day, on Saturday. I'm going to give you twice as much on Friday. What he was telling them was, basically, 
that I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to work seven days a week. You don't have to work 24-7. I will take care of you on Saturday. So they had to learn to depend on God. That was the purpose of the Sabbath day, to depend upon God. He's going to take care. This was a hand-to-mouth people. You know what that is? Hand-to-mouth? It means you eat what you gathered today. You can't preserve it for tomorrow. They had no such things as food preservatives then. Whatever they gathered one day, they better eat it right away or it would spoil or turn rancid. So he's saying, I don't want you gathering on Saturday because I'll take care of you on Friday. They had The only way they could preserve food was through dehydration, drying the food, or salting the food. And some even resorted to honey preservatives. But they had no refrigeration. They had no way to accumulate and store food. So they were hand-to-mouth people. And what God was saying was, you don't have to be hand-to-mouth today. I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. The Sabbath was the day that they should remember and they should think about God and think about the fact that God is taking care of me today. So when Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, was he actually earning a living? Was he violating the hand-to-mouth idea, concept? No, he wasn't. He wasn't in violation of that. He was not earning a living. He was not plowing a field. He was not working a beast. He was not picking fruit off a tree. What was he doing? He was simply enjoying what God had given him to do. And that was healing people. The Sabbath is not a sign for Christians. It was Israel's sign. Our sign is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we had a, if we had a lesson to learn in this text in Luke chapter 13... And that's the little story within the big story. If there's a lesson to learn, the lesson I learn is that God is going to take care of me. That I have to depend upon Him. Israel was supposed to depend upon God. Matter of fact, the, uh, the Bible says that Israel was supposed to take one year off every seven years. They were supposed to go on a sabbatical. God was going to give them enough the sixth year in a harvest to hold them over another full year plus another year of planting and harvesting. So he was going to give them a sabbatical every seven years. They should have learned, they should have been learning that God is in charge of these things and he's going to take care of you. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, it says, Certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we'd see a sign from you. Show us a sign. Well, the sign they had, and while they were getting upset about it, I guess, the sign they had was the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath day, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to remember who they were, right? They were supposed to remember that God had taken them out of Egyptian bondage and they crossed the Red Sea. They were supposed to remember that God had taken the Mount Sinai and had given them the law. They were supposed to remember that He was taking care of them and had given them a land of milk and honey. They were supposed to remember all these things. 
Because God had given them a sign and he said, this is the day that you remember these things. Saturday. Here's when you remember all this. Who you are. And that's what they were supposed to do when they came together. It says, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Master, we'd see a sign from you. He answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, God did, get, did not give me the Sabbath as a sign. I don't have to live hand to mouth. I can accumulate. I've got a refrigerator. And I can put stuff in storage. I can keep all that. The Sabbath, Saturday, should make, has no meaning to me. The sign I have is the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I remember Him. I should remember Him every day. But I'm told that I remember Him when I partake of the Lord's Supper. So in Matthew chapter 26... And in Luke chapter 22, he gives the, the, he, he tells us what the Lord's Supper is about, and it's about the breaking of bread and the drinking of the fruit of the vine, the cup. And Luke says, and Luke's the one that says it in verse, chapter 22 and verse 19, Luke says that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, I do not keep the Sabbath, Saturday, in remembrance of a sign that God had with Israel, I'm not an Israelite. I don't have to remember that. What I do remember is the sign that God gave me. I remember Jesus, the Son of God. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. He said, Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till He come. And this takes place, friends, on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, and at verse 6, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. The Lord lives among us as a people. We're not able to get together all the time. We should. We try. So if someone were come looking for you today on Sunday, where would they find you? Well, they'll probably find you in your house in front of, in front of your computer monitor. But typically, where, the, where would they find you on Sunday? They would find you in a church building. And what would you be doing? You'd be remembering Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You'd be remembering Him. The Lord lives among us, and He administers to our needs every day of the week. As believers, we're constantly aware of how well He takes care of us and how He provides for us. Every need that we have. He said, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all of his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He takes care of us daily. So, we learn to depend upon God. And we remember that and remember him and what he's done for us on the first day of the week. It's certainly, there's certainly a rest waiting for us. Israel had their rest on Saturday. And God said, take it easy on Saturday. But the rest we have as Christians is awaiting us. We don't have a weekly rest. Every Saturday to us is simply a Saturday. It happens weekly. And every Sunday is simply a Sunday. It happens weekly. 
But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through 10, it says, There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. He that has entered into his rest, he has ceased from his own works as the Lord did from his. We are an essential part of the story that we read in the New Testament. We're part of it. And as you're reading the, the Gospels of Jesus Christ, you're reading about Him, you're feeling yourself drawn into these stories. And you know why? Because you're part of it. You're part of the story. It's about you. And that's why you can read it over and over and over again and find different things in And it still, it draws you in. And it makes you feel like you're right there and you have a, an integral part in what's going on. And you do. You do. You are in it. He's entered into us. He's entered into our hearts. And as a people, He's among us. We're in the story. And we can claim our victory in Jesus Christ in His story. Thank you.